Assalamu alaikum, everyone. Happy New Year. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Okay, we've got an adhan going off. <laughs> Perfect timing. Um, first, I have to express my profound gratitude to Rami, who did an amazing job with both the adhan and the introduction while I was gone. And it's so true that so many people demanded that he come and do repeat performance. And I'm sorry to disappoint those who just showed up to hear Rami, but I'm going to have to do for tonight. So thank you so much, Rami. You were amazing. Um, as Sheikh said, it was a riveting introduction. So alhamdulillah, thank you so much. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's been, um, it, alhamdulillah, you know, travel is one of these things that I actually really don't like. Um, but I discovered from this trip and going back to California, um, you know, it's, it's such a profound lesson in so many different ways. Um, it's not, you know, it was great to see friends and family, but of course it was like really unusual too, um, to go visit, you know, kind of where I grew up um, and see my parents and then go back down to LA, which is where we called home for over 20 years. Um, and then, you know, it just calls into question like what you think about home because you know, when I arrived at my parents' house, my parents said, oh, I'm so happy you're home. And I thought, okay, well, this was home for me, but it's not really home for me now. I have my own home. And then I went down to LA, which is, was home and everything was familiar, but it really wasn't quite home because like Sheikh wasn't there and it changed, a lot of things had changed. And then Ohio is still sort of new, so it's definitely home because, you know, it's where everything is that I know and oh, I own and my friends and my, you know, what I'm doing now. But it's not really home either because we haven't really been here that long. So you really start reflecting on, you know, what it means to be home and what is part of home and who is part of home and, you know, and what, what is it that defines home. And so it's, um, you know, I think it's where you find peace, where you have your loved ones. It's kind of everywhere and nowhere, um, you know, and things are constantly changing. So it was just such a really important reflective experience. Um, and I'm grateful for that because it's important to get out of your space and um, you know, see things in a different light. And so, um, you know, it's hard on everyone um, here, um, all the people that had to hold down the fort and help take care of, you know, things. Um, but, you know, it was um, definitely an important visit. So um, I missed everybody and thank you to everyone. So anyway, alhamdulillah. Um, and I cannot believe that we're literally on the very last day of 2022. I have no idea where this year went, but um, I wanted to just take the opportunity, I guess, to share some of the stuff. My, my email went out late. My weekly email went out late because I arrived late Thursday night and, um, you know, wanted to also kind of reflect on some of the stuff that happened this year. And so I created um, my own, if you haven't seen this yet, my own top 10 list because I love top 10 lists for the end of the year. I think they're always fun. Um, of some of the best things that happened here at Asuli. So I thought I would just share that um, very quickly. So number 10, maybe someone can do a drum roll for me, but number 10 was just receiving um, really, really beautiful messages from all points around the world, um, which is always so shocking. You don't really know how your work is affecting people until they actually reach out and they tell you. And then when you layer on top of that where these messages were coming from, like Pakistan to Australia, Singapore, Kashmir, Uzbekistan, you know, everywhere, that places that you've never even heard of. Um, and then to say that, you know, what you're doing has changed my life, helped me reconnect with my faith, you know, God bless you. Um, it was something that I said to, you know, some of the many people actually, because, you know, we come across um, people in our work who are so lonely, they feel like they, um, you know, are isolated um, and what they see uh, expressed as Islam, you know, is not what they connect with. And so they go searching online and then alhamdulillah, you know, a lot of times I get messages that people are like, 
I prayed to God to guide me or I was trying to understand something and I prayed to God to you know, lead me to the answer. And then they, they find a suli and then they start looking at the chutbahs and the halakas and the excerpts and all the stuff that we have out there. Um, and then they're so happy and they feel like, oh my God, okay, this is what resonates with me. And so then they feel connected and they reach out. And so when you start thinking about all those lonely people everywhere around the world and they've kind of found a suli and then through us connect with, with what we're doing here, but then also connect with all the other people around the world um, who also have that same feeling, all of a sudden you start realizing this is a really big global network, you know, and you are part of something, um, you know, at least part of that small group of people that think differently or that, you know, maybe really believe in the beauty of the message of Islam and find so much value in this, you know, tafsir. It's just, it's lovely, you know, it's lovely to, to know from people that they feel less alone when they find a suli. So that was number 10. Sorry, it was only number 10. Number nine, okay, I swear it's not going to go that long. I'll go faster. Um, number nine, adopt a sewer progress. So, you know, we started this... Um, this campaign to try and get people excited about adopting, you know, a surah so that we could support our publication efforts. And now we only have six surahs that are left to be adopted. So that's really exciting. So thank you to everyone who's done that. But I also want to underscore that, you know, you don't obviously have to adopt a surah to be part of this project. Anyone who has given any bit of support, you know, even any prayer or kind word, you know, you're part of this project. And obviously, you know, this is something that we hope will be uh, an important legacy after we're all long gone. Number eight, finishing unpacking the boxes of the Asuli Library. <laughs> That's a huge accomplishment. And if you want to see like the journey and the pictures, um, go to our website. There's a link um, called Asuli Library. And I actually showed several people when I went home um, who had no idea what we had been doing, and they were blown away. And so the library is, is amazing, and that is a huge accomplishment. So thank you to everyone here, especially who's been involved and has you know shed blood and sweat and tears over like moving these books one time or another. Um, number seven is launching Asuli Press, which is so exciting. It was a, you know, such a long dream that I talked about um, when we actually launched. Um, and through that, um, creating the mechanism, um, hopefully to, um, well, first of all, to um, do number uh, six, which was publishing our first book, which is The Prophet's Pulpit, which is really exciting. So this is all part of a, a mechanism of learning and, and you know journey for us to prepare ourselves ultimately for our legacy project, which is the Project Illumin Tafsirs. Um, and you know that is really exciting. And hopefully, um, you know, as we produce more um, and hopefully as we have more support, we'll be able to produce even more important books as well. And then number five is the Share with a Friend campaign, which really kind of grew out of the Prophet's Pulpit because someone loved this book so much that they decided that they wanted to support everyone else getting a copy. And they really just unleashed us and our ability to say, wherever you are in the world, if you want a copy of this magical book, all you need to do is tell us where you are, give us your address, and we'll send it to you. And in a lot of cases for international locations, we would um, offer to send two copies because it's cheaper. It's sometimes the same price for us. And it gives them an opportunity to share with a friend or share at the library. And just another way for us to plant more seeds that hopefully will grow in the future. Um, number four, 50 powerhouse chutbahs for the entire 2022 year. Um, so they were incredible. Each one is like an incredible gem, um, you know, a, a lecture, a, a enlightenment, 50 of them, and hopefully also to populate um, future volumes of the Prophet's Pulpit. And we are definitely working hard on volume two. Um, number three, completing 
the tafsirs um, or deep dives. Um, oh, actually, I, I, I knocked out the number. 21 um, tafsirs, actually. 25, sorry, let me be clear. 21 chapters were completed. So that's a huge number, and we really covered some amazing um, surahs in the last year. Um, and then we did... 22 suras over the course of 56 halakas. So that, you know, is a lot. It's a huge number. And if you imagine that each class is like several hours long, that's a lot of class time. And that is super amazing. So that was number two. It was 56 total Project Illumin halakas. Um, there were some that required multiple sessions like Surah Nisa, Surah Al-Nur, Surah Al-Hajj, Surah Al-Tawbah. We really covered some incredible uh, suras in the last year. And then drum roll, drum roll, please, for number one. The greatest thing that happened at Asuli, at least in my opinion, was um, Dr. Bofadl reaching Surah Al-Ma'idah, which is the last um, surah that he has not covered. And so when we finish this surah, as I've said, that will be the entire 114 chapters of the Quran, which is an incredible journey. That's um, when you include the line-by-line tafsirs as well as the Project Illumin. So we still have more to do on the Project Illumin journey. Um, surah Al-Madda is our 92nd surah. So, um, you know, we have 91 down, 23 left to go. And then once we finish that, we will have our entire body of transcriptions to then turn around and, you know, hopefully turn into an amazing publication. So there you have it, top 10 of um, 2022 for Asuli. It was an incredible year. Um, I, it's, the time went so quickly, and um, but alhamdulillah, we did a lot. And we have a lot of exciting things to look forward to in 2023, not the least of which, inshallah, finishing Project Illumin, releasing uh, Prophet's Pulpit Volume 2, inshallah, and some other nice surprises that we've been working on that I don't want to talk about just yet, but they're really cool. So just to leave that out there. Um, but I really pray that um, next year, inshallah, tomorrow, <laughs> will start being a much more wonderful year for all of us, for Muslims around the world, inshallah. Um, hopefully, you know, we will have more people join our global network. We will drop more seeds of potential light and beauty. And um, thank you to everyone who's been with us on this wonderful journey thus far. So with that, I am so excited to continue with Surah Al-Ma'idah, day three. And um, thank you for joining and being with us. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Subhanallah, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Allahumma salli wa sallim wa barik ala al-Habib al-Mustafa Muhammad. النبي الأمين الموسى الرحمة للعالمين وعلى آله الميامين وعلى صحبه المختارين وعلى من اتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قولي يا رب العالمين Okay, so we, we stopped at Verse 19, um, and I think the last thing in our past halakha, the last thing we've talked about is the theology that, interestingly, Enough. I mean, it's a, as I as I said, it's a politically motivated theology, uh, very much ideologically anchored for political reasons. Uh, that um, 
the whole theology about Ahl al-Fatra, which ha had turned into a form of uh, moral and ethical escapism uh, that, um, which again, it's, it's quite odd because the, as Surah Al-Ma'idah makes clear that Allah talks to the people at the time of the Prophet and tells them that um, tell them that Allah sent a prophet after a fatra means a period of time that's all it means that after a, a period of time in which there was no messenger it, and clearly the point in Surah Al-Ma'idah is that now that this messenger has been sent uh, after the message of the final prophet the, the, the we enter a new phase in humanity and we've talked about this in many times that the very justification the very logic of that this is the final prophet And the very logic of inheriting the text of the Quran as the text of the Quran, and the the, the various transformations in in um, cultural history and human history that justifies the idea that this is the final prophet. Means that there is a new chapter of ethical responsibility and ethical accountability after the prophecy of Muhammad. But, you know, curiously enough, the theology of Ahl al Fatra that, uh, although some, you know, try to have tried to pretend that it's a medieval theology, but it's actually quite a modern theology. I mean, it, it really has very flimsy roots in pre-modern times. Um, but that's a, the, the idea that, well, periods in which there is no profit, uh, moral responsibility becomes diluted in a sense, that uh, periods in which there is no profit, then your main responsibility is to save yourself and literally yourself, your family, and no other. And to live out the period of fatra, meaning the period of no profit, because it is a period of jahiliya, it is a period of ignorance. And to just keep your head down and to... Um, uh, you know, literally be, be a fly on the wall, um, not morally engaged, not ethically engaged in any way other than your obligation to save yourself and perhaps your family, your immediate family. And, and 
because you're living in an age of jahili and an age of darkness, and then you wait for the coming of the next prophet. And as I said last halakha, that this theology completely undercuts because the, 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 the this theology, which I believe was actually uh, funded and encouraged and promoted first by colonial powers in the early uh, 20th century and late 19th century and then was taken over by uh, nationalistic governments that that found this theology extremely attractive and especially after the Nakba in Palestine and you know the, the all the, the 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 public pressure to address the plight of Palestinians and it was a very convenient political theology to basically say well nothing is going to happen until the coming of the Mahdi and so we are in a page in a in a in a period of no prophecy and ahl al-fatra we are the ahl al-fatra we are a, the, the people who are living in darkness that no no positive change is going to occur until the awaited mahdi and of course this completely completely undermines the very purpose of the prophecy of the Prophet Muhammad and the very idea of him being the last prophet because then effectively his message was received and, and lost. That's that what theology amounts to, is that the message was received and lost and there is... We are all waiting for effectively a new prophet and that is the Mahdi, which is diametrically opposed to the very idea of the Islamic message. And the very text of the Quran, of course, I mean, and as you see, the only mention of Ahl al-Fatra, or not even Ahl al-Fatra, al-Fatra min al-Rusul, you know, the, the word is, is the only thing that's mentioned, um, doesn't support the theology at all. But the reason I'm emphasizing it is because of how influential it is. I mean, if if you are a theologian that is, I mean, I've I know uh, through personal experience that uh, people that started out within the Salafi school in Egypt uh, who were spent some time you know either arrested or detained by security forces and then within the the experience of being uh, arrested or detained by Amn al-Dawla in Egypt uh, then they were encouraged to go out to be the, you know they were told that they will be released but that the theology that the state wants them to teach is the theology of Ahl al-Fatra and that they, in fact, regularly report to Amn al-Dawla, uh, and that they're very active on social media, and you know, and the gist of their whole teaching is that uh, even to ready Muslims for the destruction of the Aqsa Mosque, tell them that the period of Fatra will include uh, 
complete Zionist supremacy in the region, and that will also include the destruction of the Aqsa Mosque and the rebuilding of the temple, and all of that is just predestined, and there's nothing you can do about it, and there is, it's actually uh, uh, impious to object to any of it. It's impious to try to demonstrate for democracy or for rights or for principles or for ethics or to oppose despotism or to oppose immorality in any way. Uh, all you are, you need to do is just keep your head down and live out this period because all of this will miraculously and magically change when the Mahdi comes. And, you know, and of course, you know, you can, you can imagine why despots and colonialists and imperialists love the theology and embrace it. Um, it's extremely, it, it serves their purposes perfectly, you know, as, as they go about controlling, you know, creating new devices to control science, to control technology, to control economies, to, to, uh, to control culture. Uh, they do the thinking, they do the acting, while Muslims absolutely do nothing uh, but this amoral, apathetic um, waiting out of the Savior that is supposed to come, and the whole theology of, you know, waiting out the Savior the 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 chosen one who's going to turn darkness into light has old always been uh, a it always has disastrous consequences upon the the moral and ethical trajectory of people um, because you it 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 is diametrically diametrically opposed to the morality and ethics of the Quran, which does not allow you to hand off moral responsibility to some illusory figure um, who is going to come as a savior at some point in the future because moral responsibility and accountability is individual. And it is, you know, it, from the point of view of a believer, I don't think that it is an accident that Surah Al-Ma'idah, as we will see, in fact, taken in its totality, is a direct, compelling challenge to moral apathy and to the whole theology of what is born later as the Ahl al-Fatra of theology. Uh, if, if you would define a core purpose of Surah Al-Ma'idah, then one of these core purposes, then this core purpose is in fact to challenge the yet non-existing theology of Ahl al-Fatra or this theology of moral apathy. Um, and from the point of view of a believer, of course, you, you know that Allah knows, you know, that this is one of the dangers 
this is one of the ways that Muslims can go awfully wrong exactly like previous recipients of the message have gone awfully wrong and that Allah codes the warning about this in the last revelation of the Quran is it's no coincidence, no accident. Uh, but of course, that's not the way that people, that the especially beyond the earlier generations, that's not the way that Muslims have chosen to construct Surah Al-Ma'idah. Uh, and as we will see, I mean, ignoring the, the, the very explicitness of the text about the moral objective of Surah Al-Ma'idah. Okay. So, after the, the, telling the, the humanity beyond just the Arabs and of, the, of, the, of Arabia, but humanity at large, that the, there is, Allah has sent successive waves of messengers and that there has been a period in which no messenger was sent gearing up for the prophecy of Muhammad, which, which Allah constantly reminds us recipients of the Bible that they were put on notice of the coming of a final apostle and that they are aware of this notice and that they chose to misinterpret this notice in different ways uh, in order to anchor the coming apostasy in an ethnic identity. In other words, to say that, well, you know, it, the, the coming apostle cannot be but Jewish or um, cannot be a descendant of Ismail because that's the wrong race or the wrong progeny. Um, and I, the Quran consistently identifying this as a, as a corruption and undermining of the divine will, then Surah Al-Ma'idah takes a turn bringing back the issue, sort of, continuing the conversation by reminding Muslims, and as we've said repeatedly, when the Quran talks about Jews or Christians or, or whatever groups, it is, it is doing so to make a point to Muslims. By reminding Muslims that there were an earlier group of people who received an equally decisive message. Of course, these are the Israelites and the followers of, uh, the recipients of Moses, one of the major, pro, uh, major um, uh, um, pivotal prophets in the Abrahamic legacy. And significantly, Surah Al-Ma'idah reminds Muslims we know that Surah Al-Baqarah focused repeatedly on the idea of a chosen people 
and challenge that as we've talked about. And as we've talked about last halaqah, Surah Al-Ma'idah sort of harkens back to this idea, but not as deeply as Surah Al-Baqarah, but sort of was a nod towards that both Jews say that we are chosen and Christians say we are chosen, Allah, and Allah reminds everyone that, you know, we've already challenged and and deconstructed the idea of a chosen people because it is not your status that makes you chosen it is your moral record and your performance so significantly what then Allah goes back to here is a chapter in the past that is full of moral messages. The Israelites had been living in subjugation in Egypt for a very long time. Musa leads the Israelites out of Egypt and as we know already that the Israelites flounder they they weaken at several points after being saved because they start longing for the comforts of enslavement yes we were slaves but we enjoyed comforts that we are missing in uh, this exodus out of Egypt um, and into the desert after having crossed the sea. And we've already encountered that the fact that some Israelites choose to try to go back or choose to go back to Egypt and we've we've talked about this in the past but now these followers of Musa السلام, are confronted with a new challenge very much like the challenge that confronted the followers of Muhammad after having been led by a prophet taken out of a state of moral loss and a state of subjugation and a state of enslavement the challenge is to construct a new moral order the challenge we, we call it a state I mean but of course the idea of a modern state is very different than the political orders that uh, existed in pre-modernity 
But nevertheless, is that you are now as going back to your state of subjugation in Egypt is the wrong moral choice. The right moral choice is that you follow your prophet into a new land where you are to establish a your own moral order, but that will require a lot of very hard work. There is a big difference between the Old Testament and the Quran on this point. First, however, before we get to the difference, so I'm talking now about, obviously, um, verses 20, 21, 22, 24, until 25. So as we've talked about already that they're in Sina. Sina is a desert. Unless you are nomads, and the population of nomads is always a controlled population because the, the, the nature of nomadic life, most babies born will die uh, in, in, in nomadic life. There's no medical care. There's very little resources. The constant moving makes children exposed to a great deal of diseases and ultimately you know, it is only a, a certain children that are able to handle this type of uh, environmental challenge and survive. Nomadic life for the Israelites is something that they're not accustomed to, and the ecology of Sina will not support the population of the Israelites. And they are told to head to Palestine where they are to Palestine and this, this, this entire area that is at the Mediterranean, to where they are to carve out lives for themselves. The Old Testament makes this into a drama of a promised land. And in fact, the Old Testament has these fantasies of slaughter and massacre because I, I don't I don't believe that they are it's describing actual historical events. But I think the authors of the Old Testament were fantasizing about putting the, their enemies to the sword and slaughtering their enemies down to the last child and woman and man. Um, and so in the Old Testament, when ultimately the, the Israelites are supposed to enter the lands of Palestine, they are supposed to put everyone to the slaughter and the fulfillment of the promised land is an ethnic cleansing, is that this is our land, 
anyone who's not a part of us is ethnically cleansed, is completely eradicated from this land. Nothing of the sort is found in the Quran. It's not, there is no promised land, there's no ethnic cleansing. All that you find in the Quran is a reference to this land, including the Holy Land, Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa, Ya Qawm, Udkhulu Al-Ard Al-Muqaddasa, Al-Lati Katab Allah Lakum, that what Allah has decreed for you, what Allah has ordered to do, you to do, is to go to the sacred land, to the Ard Al-Muqaddasa, and to establish a life there. Both the Quran and the Bible agree that the response of the Israelites was to tell Moses, we are not willing to fight for our rights or for what we believe in. The descriptions in the Bible are far more dramatic than the Quran. So, I mean, this is just a sample in the Bible. So after 12 representatives are sent to Palestine, uh, the, the, the Bible says that they were sent to, to act as spies. In the Islamic tradition, they were sent more like representatives, that they, they go to the land of Palestine to see what would, what would, what accommodations they can come to with the people who are already there. In either case, it becomes clear that, as I said before many times, that in pre-modern times, the, the international law, the prevailing law of people was the war of all against all. It, it, it was presumptively, everyone was at war with everyone unless you come to an express agreement of non-belligerence. And unfortunately, what the Israelites found that although this land would, could easily accommodate the Israelite population, and especially that they were not commanded to inhabit the entire land, Palestine is rather very big, but to inhabit that part of the land that is sacred, which is basically Jerusalem. And the entire Israelite population would fit in Jerusalem. You know, the whole idea of no Judea and Samaria is ours, and this is ours, and, you know, uh, Khalil is ours. And this is all just historical mythology. Because the the population of Israelites could not, from a historical perspective, possibly, in, in any possible stretch of the imagination, uh, inhabit the, what we, the entire part of land that we identify as Palestine now. You know, all the, if, if you gathered all the Israelites that left from Egypt counting the Israelites that went back to Egypt and the Israelites that perished in the desert, 
you, you would they would fit Jerusalem and they wouldn't fill up Jerusalem and both the Quran and and the, the Bible refers to the part of Palestine that's sacred but the only part is Jerusalem and that is uncontested anyway In the Bible, here's just a sample of the of the type of the of the nature of the description of how the Israelites reacts. So this is after the the representative go the according to the Bible they scout the situation in Jerusalem and then they come back and they inform the Israelites of what's going on in Jerusalem. Then they say the whole community broke out. The whole community broke into loud cries, and the people wept that night. All the Israelites railed against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in the land of Egypt, the whole community shouted at them. Or if only we might die in this wilderness. Why is the Lord taking us to the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be, will be carried off. It would be better for us to go back to Egypt, they said, um, and they said to one another, let us head back for Egypt. So the, you get the idea that the entire narrative in the Bible is that the Israelites react to this by saying, heading to Jerusalem is going to be hard work. We are possibly, we're going to confront hostility. We're going to confront enemies, of course, in the Bible. You know, there's the whole mythology of the Nephilim, the giants, and that there are giants that we're going to have to fight, and that these, you know, giants are are, are sort of superhuman, and, and that's mythology, that, that's exaggerations to the text that you find don't find in the Quran. The Quran, they're described as Qawmun Jabbarin. Jabbarin doesn't mean they're giants. It means that they're actually uh, tyrants, that they're uh, cruel and inhuman, that it's not that they're giants, they're just vicious people. And so it's going to include possibly having to do what Muslims did in Medina, fight a vicious people, fight an ignorant people, and work hard to build a ethical order, a civilized order, the easy thing, obviously, is to live in submission, exactly like the Muslims of Medina. The easy thing is to go back to Mecca and mind your own business and be like the theology of Ahl al-Fatra and just mind your own business and live quietly and live in subjugation and submission. The hard thing is to engage of all the sacrifices that are required to build a life in Mecca, in the same in Medina, in the same way that the hard thing is to rise to the challenge of building a life in this new settlement rather than simply returning back to a life of subjugation and moral passivism. And 
although the Bible is far more detailed about this in that the Israelites say we want to go back to Egypt uh, why is your God putting us to you know we, we, to, we at least in Egypt you know we enjoyed basic things we are we had yeah we, we didn't have dignity or uh, or or uh, freedom but we had you know um, whatever luxuries of life the Egyptians allowed us. In both the Bible and the Quran agree that God is so dismayed at the moral cowardice of a people who are led from subjugation to freedom, but who crave, who instead of rising, instead of rising to the moral challenge, they actually crave subjugation again, because it's more, it's the easy way out, it's a comfortable way out. Both the Bible and the Quran agree that God punishes this people by saying, well, I am going to effectively permit you to be in a state of uh, um, um, uh, I'm missing the word um, T, a state of loss and um, So maybe it'd be easier. Look at 26. فَإِنَّهُمْ حَرَّمَةٌ مُحَرَّمَةٌ عَلَيْهِمْ أَرْبَعِينَ سَنَةٌ يَتِيهُونَ فِي الْأَرْضِ فَلَا تَأْسَ عَلَى قَوْمِ الْفَاسِقِينَ Let's see how Muhammad Asa translates this. So, so the land is forbidden to them for 40 years while they want, he just says, wander on earth. Yatihunafil art is not just it's not wander, it's being lost. So the punishment is that you are in a state of instability, state of moral and physical loss. So God lifts the divine hand from being at your side, helping you, to saying, okay. You know what? You're on your own. And getting to the to a little bit at the micro level is important. After this period of rebellion against Musa and Aaron, السلام, both prophets, Harun and Musa, both Harun and Musa die in the desert. So the Israelites lost their immediate leadership. The moral challenge, like the moral challenge that Muslims confronted after the death of the Prophet is not to engage in infighting, but to come together around a unified system of leadership the vacuum of power left by the death of your prophet. 
Muslims eventually fail at that, and, and, and they have a civil war eventually. But the Israelites failed at that immediately. And instead of the 40 tribes finding a way to come together, they literally became lost in a state of infeuding. Some of them crossed the desert back to Egypt, and we lose track of those who go back to Egypt, whether they become assimilated and, you know, or whether, as Jewish mythology, mythology has it, some of them continue maintaining their Jewish identity for centuries until uh, the modern age. Um, but, you know, there's no way to historically verify that, that some of the Jewish populations in Egypt didn't come from Morocco or didn't come from Andalusia uh, after the Reconquista. That in fact, it, it, it's been there since, you know, the age of the... There's no way to verify that. Uh, not that I'm, you know, I have any reason to, to challenge that other than just to say that these are this is more a mythology than actual verifiable historical claims. They're, they're, they're things that people believe without a way of historically proving or disproving. And, but, the fact is, the population, uh, the, the ecology of Sina itself, the desert, cannot sustain these, the, the Israelite population, and they're not nomadic people. So these 40 years, the 40 years of Tih, it's not really wandering, it's being lost. It's 40 years of turbulence, 40 years of inner feuding, 40 years of inner fighting, 40 years of be existing without a unified leadership or a, 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 a moral purpose. All they have is the memory of their now deceased leaders, Moses and Aaron, um, and the idea, their the awareness that they had failed in reaching the sacred land Jerusalem. And so here you pause. So notice 24. Or before 24, let's go back to 22. So the, the, the response to Moses is that there are powerful tyrants who are in Jerusalem. And we will not venture to go in there unless they leave. Well, they're not going to leave. And so... Then you have the intervention of um, uh, 23, where, you know, pious people say, trust in God and do what God tells you to do. Um, 24, then, the they response again to Moses is say, قَالُوا يَا مُوسَى إِنَّا لَنْ نَدْخُلَهَا أَبَدًا مَا دَامُوا فِيهَا فَاذْهَبْ أَنْتَ وَرَبُّكَ فَقَاتِلَا إِنَّهَا هُنَا قَاعِدُونَ the, then you, they tell Moses, you and your God, go fight for your cause. We are going to stay here. It, 
more powerful picture of political and moral apathy is not possible. You're literally saying to, to your, your leader, you and your God, you know, you go achieve whatever goals and causes you, you uh, led us out of subjugation for. We're not doing it. And so then 25, Moses then complains to Allah and says, you know, that, you know, it's just me and my brother and they, my people won't listen to me anymore. And God then says, okay, well, they're punished by 40 years of being lost. And you pause there. What is the point? of telling Muslims or reminding Muslims of this story here in Surah Al-Ma'idah. It doesn't take a genius to see the very obvious point. That, yes, Muslims, you, you've rose to the, okay, to, to the challenge and supported the Prophet in Medina. Yes, you're victorious and again, you have to remember, this is when Surah Al-Ma'idah is being revealed. Yes, you've rose to the challenge of conquering even Mecca itself, your arch, your arch enemy. But as God does throughout the Quran, every time God invokes the parable of previous nations and previous prophets, is to make a moral point to Muslims, to warn Muslims about something they have to uh, be concerned about or, or something that they have to be alert to. And right after the mention of ala fatratin min rusul after the, the mention of their period of fatra, the implication, the connotations are quite clear, is that, yes, you've been victorious, but understand which is a point that the Quran makes explicitly clear several times, that if you repeat the pattern of moral cowardliness and moral apathy, where you say the easy way is for us to accept subjugation, rather than challenge tyrants and put our trust in God, you are going to be a lost people. They were lost for 40 years, but does this mean that you Muslims will be lost for 40 years? No. It could be 400 years. It could be 4,000 years. It could be, have nothing to do with the number four at all, neither 40 or 400 or 4,000. But the point is, is that once God lifts God's hand from upon you, exactly as in Surah Al-Ma'idah warns us that once you fail in rising, to the challenge of the, the moral charge dictated by your covenant with God in the same way that God tells you that people 
became aspired, inspired by al-adawa wal baghda by by the, the their their moral failures allowed hatred and pettiness and loss of moral insight to 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 grow amongst them or that uh, that part of allah's punishment is to allow for cruelty and for uh, Ill, an ill spirit of ill fighting what in short to allow for the demonic to creep into your midst that instead of finding it easy to find harmony and peace with people that logically you should find harmony and peace with you in fact do the opposite I mean at a micro level at a micro level when people invite God into their household, but it's a, it, inviting God not in an affectatious way, not in order to use God for a man to dominate a woman or for a woman to rebel to dominate a man, or you know, it, it, not not the exploiting of God, but a true invitation of the serenity. And the moral insight that comes from taqwa, that comes from piety, the, 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 the light that comes, what you find naturally coming into this household is an energy of serenity and peace. As, you know, the, 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 the elders of Sufism and, and the, 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 the perfume of beauty, the, the, the angelic perfume of serenity and peace and harmony if family the minute they start opening the doors to the demonic whether it is forms of materialism or you know uh, uh, human beings trying to control one another human beings trying to subjugate one another for different forms of egocentrism and so on the, the nature of the demonic is infighting, hostility, anger, uh, impatience, anxiety. You're angry and you don't know why you're angry. You're just pissed off. That micro level is generalizable at a macro level. You find a people that every time they try to put together you know, even even they take all the rational steps to try to get something off the ground that should get off the ground to work together socially as a, and and you find it completely failing, and failing because people are, are acting as individuals. Whatever you do, you they cannot come together. It's as if the demonic has infiltrated every level of their life, and this is the loss of baraka. While other people, you find that, you know, every time where things could go wrong, actually get, don't go wrong at all, they go right. They have that barakah, that, that, that blessing that allow things to, to it, it, you know, when, when, when there's the possibility of things going wrong, you know, failing all the way, it, it, they just don't. 
that barakah is you, you can't account for it by you know through science or empiricism or materialism it is something that be can ex, be experienced part of wisdom it's something that can be experienced and felt and acknowledged and internalized um okay So that is why in Surah Al-Ma'idah, if you remember from our last halaqah, that Allah tells us that those who drifted away from God, then Allah inspired hostility and enmity between them and infighting. And here the, the, the narrative that Allah reminds us of about the Israelites is to articulate this point. This is not about the Israelites. Again, it is about what Muslims are to learn from this moral example. If you ever become like the cowering Israelites, that the sad reality is that both Aaron and Moses died deeply disappointed. And it's not pleasant to die in the desert having feeling like you, your people failed you. And that is in part, in my opinion, this is in part why there's, without the, the moral guidance of Aaron and Moses, the risks were high for Zionist nationalism to grow in a largely amoral way to, to spin off and be without the, the moral guidance. But anyway, that's a, that's a larger topic. And Okay, so the astounding thing, which, you know, gives these things, give you pause, it makes you think about the, 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 this text, the Quran, and the author of this text, that while we are seeing the, the disasters that are that has resulted from the theology of Ahl al-Fatra, is it just a coincidence that the very verse that mentions the word Fatra is followed by a moral warning not to fall into the trap of the type of moral apathy that says, wait for a savior. Now, right after the story of Moses, or right after the, the, this, the reminder about the years of diaspora, or the 40 years of diaspora and loss, Allah in one of the most remarkable moral passages in the entire text of, of the Quran. Okay, this is 27. Let's, um, so, convey unto them, setting forth the truth, the story of the two sons of Adam's how each offered a sacrifice, and it was accepted from one of them, whereas it was not accepted from the other. 
And Cain said, I will surely slay thee. Cain says, I, I'm going to kill you, Abel, because your sacrifice was accepted and mine wasn't. And Abel repro- replied, Behold, God accepts only from those who are conscious of God. Even if thou lay thy hand on me to slay me, I shall not lay my hand on you to slay you. Behold, I fear God, the sustainer of all the words. I'm willing indeed for you to bear the burden of all the sins ever done by me, as well as the sin done by you. But then you wouldst be destined for the fire, since that is the requital of, of, of evildoers. But the other's passion drove him to slay his brother. So Cain slew um, Abel. And he slew him. And thus he became one of the lost. Thereupon God sent forth a raven which scratched the earth to show him how he might conceal the nakedness of his brother's body. And Cain cried out and said, Oh, woe! Is me. Am I then too weak to do what the raven did and to conceal the nakedness of my brother's body? And was thereupon smitten with remorse. Because of this, because of this did we ordain unto the children of Israel that if anyone slays a human being, unless it is be in punishment for murder or for spreading corruption on earth, it shall be as though he had slain all humankind, whereas if anyone saves a life, it shall be as though he had saved the lives of all humankind. Okay, so what is this intervention in Surah Al-Ma'idah about the sons of Adam and why is it connected to the story of the Israelites? And again, we come back to the central point that why are Muslims being reminded of this message at, at, at the chapter of the Quran that is effectively closing the Quran? Okay, so first, let's get a point out of the way that in, in the Bible is is. Uh, some years ago, there uh, there were some people who published. There were a group of biblical scholars, and they published a copy, uh, a color coded copy of the Bible, where they colored statements that were probably authentically uh, attributed to Jesus in one color, statements that were most certainly false attributions diseases were colored in a different color certain statements or or events that were, were most likely fabrications had a certain color code um, events or statements that you know were 50 50 had a different color code and i remember it was published i think in the 80s or early 90s um I don't. I haven't seen a copy of this um, color-coded Bible. It it was, of course, you know, there was a storm of of um, objections to um, to it. Although it, it was, but the reason I'm mentioning this is that 
the text of the Bible itself is a mixture. I mean, there are things that you that clearly had defied corruption and survived that are in all likelihood do authentically go back to um, the prophets of the Bible. And there are other parts that, you know, in all likelihood are fabrications. So in the Bible, that same reference, you find that same reference in the Old Testament that whoever kills a, a, um, a soul, it's as if they've killed humankind. If you understand, it, it is no coincidence that the God who uh, the God who revealed the Quran would know exactly what's in the text of the Old Testament and the New Testament. So I mean, when I get these in the age of Islamophobia, where Islamophobes love to go say, well, you know, your prophet said this, and there's a very similar statement in the Bible. How about that? And and my mind was blown when I found some Muslims were actually affected by that. Well, if you understand what Islam is about, the God of the Bible is the same with the God of the Quran. And the, the God of the Bible and the God of the Quran never told you that the, every word in the Bible is a fabrication. It told you there were corruptions and some, by the way, there is a school of thought in Islam that says the Bible was not corrupted in terms of, it's, it's uh, in my opinion, clearly wrong, but it's a, it's a respectable school of thought that believed that the Bible was not corrupted in terms of alterations of the words of the Bible, but in terms of the corruptions of interpretation of God's revelation. I, I think we, we can that school has been proven clearly wrong because historically we know that different copies of the Bible have show clear alterations, successive alterations from one age to another. So it's, it's beyond, I mean, from a scholarly point of view, it's, it's, it's not even a disputed matter that the, that the text of the Bible has been in flux and had evolved. Um, but from a theological perspective, it is the same prophet, the same God who spoke to Moses is the same God who, and Jesus is the same God who speaks to Muhammad. And so the fact that they would say similar statements, even identical statements, is, is, is a non-event. It's a non-issue. So anyway, But there is, both in the Bible and in the Quran, this point about killing all of humanity is a critical moral point. It was, if you look at the context of the text in the Bible, you, you will notice that the, the, the moral message of whoever kills a soul as if has killed a man, humanity is 
um, it's as if it has been clouded. It, it, it you don't get what in in the Quran it's far more clear than it is in the Bible, as if the Quran is restoring it to its original point. So let's focus on this original point. Okay. So now we the, the Quran has told us that these people who've been saved from enslavement, from subjugation, they are led by God-sent leaders, Aaron and Moses, but when it comes to the moral challenge of having to sacrifice and work hard, they failed and there was a punishment. And then at this point comes the story of Cain and Abel. All right. Cain and Abel, the story of Cain and Abel is reminding us of something that is very primordial to the nature of human beings. This whole notion of, forget that, I mean, there's a lot of mythology about what Abel, what sacrifice Abel offered and what sacrifice Cain offered, and the mythology makes it sound like uh, uh, Abel, uh, Cain offered, you know, uh, uh, a bad sacrifice and and Abel offered a good sacrifice and that's the point. That's not the point. That's not the point. That's mythology, that biblical mythology, not not Quranic material. Um, and so all the riwayat that you can that you find that were taken from the Israelite traditions about that are without any authentic basis. One offered a sacrifice, and the other offered the sacrifice. It was accepted from one, but not accepted from the other. What is the point of a sacrifice? A sacrifice, the qurban, is the effort, literally, the, the sacrifice, what you give up for the sake of God. What is it that the Israelites were being asked to do at the gates of Jerusalem? It was to make a sacrifice. What is it that Muslims were being asked to do when they did the Hijra to Medina? And what is it that they bring asked to do as, as they meet, as they sit at the doorstep of the death of the Prophet? Is to make a sacrifice. Why is it that Allah would accept the effort of one party and not accept the effort of another party? It's your intentionality. It is why you're making that sacrifice. Biblical corruptions made it sound or the way it reads in the Bible, is that this is a very materialistic God that liked the sacrifice of one, but didn't like the sacrifice of the other. That has nothing to do with the Quran. 
in the Quran, one of the sons of Adam has a relationship with God. The other is, is egocentric. It's about himself. And there's in the mythology of the Quran, you know, you get into this, I mean, sorry, the mythology of the Bible, you get into this whole thing about uh, who Cain uh, uh, wanted to marry, and, you know, I don't want to get into this stuff. But anyway, so, now, the problem, though, is that when human beings confront frustration, the challenge of failure, instead of looking within, they blame the other. And so, and here the story is illustrated perfectly. It tells you that once this, the, the impious one, or the one who had improper intentionalities, found himself frustrated, instead of looking within and saying, what's wrong with my relationship with Allah that made my offer of a sacrifice not accepted, he blames his brother. The classic, and this is exactly what the Israelite tribes did for 40 years. And this is exactly what every road to moral failure is that instead of looking within, you blame the other. And you say, it, you, you, you engage in justifications that have nothing to do within inner insight, but everything to do about projecting blame. And once the dynamic of projection of blame, but look at the, the moral stance exemplified by Abel. It says, because of my relationship with God, what I am thinking of is that, and this is, a, 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 this is an old theological point, that if you kill someone, if you murder someone, among the things you do, you've precluded their possibility of repenting for their sins. Because you, you cut their life short. So whatever sins they have that they could have repented from, now you bear, this is why murder is is the way that, that when you when I read about Muslims killing each other, even in executions, when when you know the executions carried out in Iran or Saudi or Egypt, and, and it's like, do you realize what you're doing? You are not just bearing the sin of killing someone unjustly, but all the sins that they've committed in their life that they could have possibly repented from, but because of your unjust killing, you now bear these sins on top of your own sins. So that is what Abel is telling Cain, is that, you know, I don't want to take the risk of bearing your sins by killing you. I don't want to take the risk of 
being even if it means defending myself because i rather take the morally cautious path even if the sacrifice is my own life that is precisely what we call immoral point immoral stand it is a stand against self-interest a stand against pragmatic interest stand against utilitarian interest for the sake of a moral cause. That is the, the raison d'etre of the very logic of sacrifice. And Cain in his anger, driven by his own passion and, and his, 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 goes ahead and murders his brother. Now, in this gesture that is amazing, Sufis picked up on this. They're the only interpreters of the Quran that picked up on this very easily and and with great elaboration. That when Allah sends a bird that is burying another dead bird, and Cain says, sees this and says, you know, okay, so I now killed my brother. The least I can do is to cover his body. In other words, I failed miserably. What the Sufis picked on in, in, in what the way Allah sends this bird to do what it does is what we've encountered before the Quran of creation that even in the midst of moral failure even when you read the text and defy the text and you sin against the text Allah is still the merciful, compassionate, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim will still talk to you through the Quran of creation and the Quran of creation includes your own inner soul and your own intuitions. That is why you preserve the Quran of creation. You don't offend against the Quran of creation. Because when you destroy creation, you're you're muting God's voice. This whole, you remember all all the halakas we talked about the Quran of creation. There's the written Quran and there's the created Quran, and everything in the universe is the created Quran, and the Quran of creation reaches out to the sinner in the heart of their sin, and still says. God sends you a rope to possibly come back if only you would listen. So even in the midst of the the, the horribleness of this crime, there is this extended rope of salvation and possibility of at least mitigating the mitigating how horrible the crime is. 
But the principle itself is that every time you engage in an unjust murder, you are reproducing the sin of the sons of Adam and Eve. And that is the sin of, instead of looking within to clean your own house, you project moral error, you project fault, and you project it, in this case, project it to such an extent that you give yourself the license to exterminate the life of others, to end the game, to, to say, okay, it's done. And, and that type of authorization to end the possibility of repentance, to end the possibility of moral growth, to end the possibility of moral correction, who can authorize you to do that but the maker, the, the creator of, the, the maker of creation? And the maker of creation doesn't authorize you to do that. And look, if you, if you look at, I mean, if you think of it from this perspective, it is truly, every time you exterminate a life, you've exterminated the possibility of moral growth and what you will answer to is, here's the role you played in exterminating XYZ lives and only God knows what their potential could have been and only God knows you know even if it is the smallest percentages even if it is the type of moral growth of just burying a dead body but you're going to bear that responsibility and you're going to bear that sin and that is why what the sin you commit is against humanity at large, not against a particular person. Because you've defeated the entire moral philosophy of creation by the shout, by the by by through the route of extermination. Uh, sometimes you know it's like uh, cancel. Uh, of course, I don't know really understand cancel cultures, or but when you cancel a human being, it, it, cancellation of a human being is such an arrogant act. Because do you really know that there is no? that there's no good in there? Do you really know that there's no possible potentiality in there? Are you really able to say that? And so it is, it is such an arrogant act that it is truly an offense against creation. Okay, let's... Um, uh, let's take a... a a three minute break. Three minutes. 
بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم ما بتشري تشريف اوكي سو in the midst of moral loss even if you deny the revealed quran the textual quran the quran of creation will still talk to you will still will still reach out to you like it reached out to cain but there is no we 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 know that earlier allah told us that whoever kills a soul they earn god's wrath and eternal damnation but it is it is as if allah is telling us or Allah is telling us that in the midst in, in earlier in surah al-maidah we're told that when you drift away from the divine from the light from an-nur there is adawa and baghda but what is what, what is the net result of this adawa and baghda the hostility and enmity the the biggest pitfall i mean where it ends up the worst place it ends up is in killing is in murder that is the 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 ultimate moral, moral failure is when you put no value on human life which is after all belongs solely to god as all life belongs solely to god and remember the surah al-maidah is the same surah in which allah reminds us that you can't take the life of an animal except in allah's name that transgressing upon the life of an animal in anything but allah's name is an offense this is compounded many folds when in the midst of moral loss the failure that you deteriorate into is to kill one another and so in surah al-maidah it's a remarkable like moral notice that i know that when you drift away from my path and you get lost the thing that you will be doing is that you will kill one another but remember that this moral failure is the abyss of darkness but moral failure being lost lost like the the example that Allah gave us was the recipients of the earlier message the jews and the christians and when we are warned that allah 
will allow them to suffer enmity and hostility towards one another. For, and and the, the story of the, the loss of the Israelites for 40 years, this, come, this precedes the passages that... Let's okay. First, let's read the read the the translation, and then. So this comes right before the passages that talk about what is known as the crime of Hiraba and Had the Sarqa, the 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 punishment for theft. Okay, so. Um. Okay, so here we're talking about 33. It is but, it is but a just recompense, recompense for those who make war on God and God's apostle and endeavor to spread corruption on earth, that they are being slain in great numbers or crucified in great numbers or have in result of their perverseness their hands and feet cut off in great numbers. This is Muhammad Asad's translation. إنما جزاء الذين يحاربون الله ورسوله ويسعون في الأرض فسادا أي يقتلوا أو يصلبوا أو تقطع أيديهم وأرجلهم من خلاف أو ينفوا أو ينفوا في الأرض ذلك لهم خذ في الدنيا ولهم في الآخرة عذاب عظيم so uh, crucified in great numbers or in result of their perverseness their hands and feet cut off in great numbers or are being entirely banished from the face of earth, such as such is their ignominy in this world. But in the life to come yet, more awesome suffering awaits them, save for such of them as repent, ere you, O believers, become more powerful than they. For you must know that God is much forgiving, uh, a dispenser of grace. Um, إلا الذين تابوا قبل أن تقدروا تقدروا عليهم فعلموا أن الله غفور رحيم. Okay, so this is the hiraba part. Okay. Then the, we have a an interlude which emphasizes jihad and. يا أيها الذين آمنوا اتقوا الله وابتغوا إليه الوسيلة وجاهدوا في سبيله لعلكم تفلحون. Seek your Lord and apply yourself in a jihad in for the sake of your Lord. And then Allah says that when those who end in hellfire. The the, 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 the the result is disastrous because everything they cared about, all the material things they cared about, will not earn them salvation from hellfire, right? So this is now 36 and 37. And then we get to 38. And as to... Uh, the man who steals and the woman who steals cut off the hands of either of them in requital or in punishment for what they have wrought as a deterrent ordained by God. For God is almighty wise. 
فمن تاب من بعد ظلمه وأصلها فإن الله يتوب عليه إن الله غفور رحيم but but as for him who repents after having thus done wrong and makes amend, amends behold God will accept his repentance verily God is much forgiving and a dispenser of grace okay so this follows right after the story of Cain and Abel and we have again to summarize the structure the verse that talks about those who cause corruption on earth fight God and the prophet and cause corruption on earth and an interlude about that strive in jihad in the path of your Lord because remember that all the material things will avail you nothing in the hereafter and then the verse about punishing theft first Muhammad Asad's translation for those of you who have Muhammad Asad's translation in his opinion the way that he translates these verses reflects his view that the Hiraba verses, the Hiraba verses are the verses that talk about corruption on earth, i.e. 33. It is just, it is but a just compass for those who make war on God and God's apostle and endeavor to spread corruption on earth, that they are being slain in great numbers or crucified in great numbers or have in result of their perverseness their hands and feet cut off in great numbers or are being entirely or being or are in, being entirely banished from the face of the earth in his view these verses were not intended to prescribe a punishment for a crime that muslim jurists often called the crime of hiraba the crime of hiraba in short, is in Islamic jurisprudence, the crime of Haraba is a crime of highway robbery. Or what some people have said is the crime of terrorism in the modern age. The crime of targeting people, terrorizing people, when they are in a position where, what they call in Adam al-Ghawth, when there is no help, there's no aid, and you you um, exploit their vulnerability and terrorize them. And the classic example of that was people traveling and then highway robbers that target these people when there's no one to help them, no one to save them, and make the roadways or make travel full of terror and fear. And so the in traditional classical Islamic jurisprudence, this is called the crime of Haraba, and Muslim jurists said that when a crime of haraba is committed, you can the punishment can be either execution, can be you sever a hand and a foot, and when it says crucify, yusallabu, in Islam it doesn't mean the Roman crucifixion. It it meant that they would be um, 
risen on a, a put on a pole um, uh, after death. That, that's the prevailing opinion, at least. Uh, or banishment. or And most jurors said banishment could be just imprisonment. And that there is a choice that these verses were intended to say, you know, you, you, you can either execute or you can banish or you can do. Um, Muhammad Asad believes that these verses were not meant as prescriptive, that it was, that it was an erroneous to read these verses as intended to set out legal punishments. In Muhammad Asad's view, what these verses are saying is there's, there's, they're warning us about the fate of immoral people. It's saying that people who choose a path of immorality that rebel against God and the Prophet and tear and spread corruption on earth if you look at their fate historically, if you examine what happens to them in history, you will find that they have horrible ends. They end up either killing one another, uh, torturing one another, or literally banishing one another from the face of the earth. So Muhammad Asad is saying that God was inviting us to reflect on the fate of those people who set aside morality and commit themselves to doing whatever they please on earth without moral path. Um, grammatically, you can defend Muhammad Assad's point of view. I mean, grammatically, it, it, it is a defensible position because grammatically it can be read either prescriptively or descriptively. That is simply describing the fate of a people rather than prescribing a punishment. And, I mean, it's up to you whether you want to accept Muhammad Assad's position, but of course, you know, don't, don't make up your mind without looking up his tafsir and reading his uh, his explanatory note about this because he has a footnote explaining why he chooses to translate this passage in this way. Now, of course, this, this is extremely, you know, I, I don't need to say it's that's very controversial because that goes against the weight of Islamic interpretation in Islamic law which tended to read these verses prescriptively, as we said, like as, as prescribing punishments. Okay. My approach is somewhat different. And it, my approach is tied to the, to the message of Surah Al-Ma'idah itself. And also to the role of rhetoric and text in, in, in 
the, the, the way texts spoke to people in different historical periods and different historical times. Okay, so let's first let's go back. So God is telling us about those who ultimately fail in their moral charge. Those and to tie it precisely to Surah Al-Ma'idah, those who fail in Subur Salam, those who fail, and as we said, Sabil Salam is the path to goodness. And those who, and the, the result, as we said, is enmity, hatred, projecting of blame, descending into murdering one another, and it and 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 as the Quran in summary puts it, from instead of going from darkness to light, it's going from light to darkness. Now there is when it comes to revelation um, 33, the Hirabara legislation, there is what, what played a huge role is a narrative about an occasion for revelation. And the occasion for revelation is known as the incident of Uraina or Arina. Um, The incident, in summary, that is reported was that a group, a, a tribe, known as the tribe of Oraina, went to the, to the prophet, pretended to convert to Islam, and when, uh, and asked that the prophet send with them teachers or people to teach them the faith and as was the practice that we've talked about is then that the prophet chose certain people to go with the tribe to teach them the faith and however on after they left Medina heading back to their homelands it turned out to be a trap and the that tribe took the people to the companions that the that the uh, that were sent with them and they tortured them in a horrible way they they tied them to poles they uh, uh, um, uh, punctured their eyes they cut out their their ears and tongues and then left them to die so because uh, you know they, they were in this horrible death of course they stole everything that they had with them and ran off that there is narratives in the islamic tradition that says that the occasion for revealing the verse about corruption on earth was that incident is that god was saying basically in response to that incident the punishment for people like the people of Horaina 
who commit this type of crime, a crime of treachery and terror, is that they can be punished either in you know one of the three ways outlined in the verse. And because of the incident of Oraina, Muslim jurists, that's why Muslim jurists read this verse as referring to highway robbery. Did the incident of Oraina take place? Yes. It most definitely took place. That There was a tribe called Oraina that did take a group of companions and then tortured them to death. The problem, though, is that the incident took place much earlier than the revelation of Surah Al-Ma'idah. So that's one issue, is that the second is that Sunni and Shia sources, all Shia sources and about one-third of Sunni sources disagree about what the Prophet did in response to the incident of Uraina. Some Sunni sources claim that what the Prophet did is that he sent an expedition that arrested the people responsible for the crime and treated them in kind. But that would mean torture. And as we know that the Prophet forbade torture. And that is why Shia sources and about one-third of Sunni sources reject that tradition and choose alternative set of reports that the Prophet set an expedition that had a battle fought out with the people of Uraina that they were defeated and they went deeper into the, the desert. And that there, there were no that the, 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 the sort of neat story of, oh, they went and arrested some people, and that that is without support. But whether you accept the story of a battle or the story of a, a punishment, in either case, if you ignore the dating issue, then you'd say, well, these verses address highway robbery. And this is what the majority of Muslim jurists, in fact, did. But why? So in this methodology, so God finished talking about Cain and Abel and the incident, then God just changed topic to talk about highway robbery and to talk about theft with an interlude of a statement about jihad. This is consistent with sort of the line-by-line -line interpretation of the Quran that doesn't look at a, a, a cohesive, coherent text. Okay. So keep that, all of that in mind. And let's go back again and, and, and take a hold of the threads. So we are being warned about a lost people. And that after God tells us that about the 
the, the infamy of the sin of murder. And then we have these, the first, the revelation about al-fasad fil-ard and the revelation about theft. One of the inevitable earmarks of moral deterioration what happens when people truly drift from light to darkness and become socially and morally ethically unhinged in turning against one another is the weaker the, the stronger terrorizes the weaker and the stronger usurps what is in the hand of the weaker so in other words it is not just that you are receiving a theoretical warning about that you will be lost in on the face of the earth that you will be committing the crimes that of Cain and Abel against one another, but what will actually come become of your society is that you will terrorize one another as the stronger prey upon the weaker. And the grammatical structure, as this is, has been pointed by countless scholars, is that God equates causing corruption on the earth, corrupting the earth, was being in a state of rebellion against God and the prophet. And remember that this is right after Allah alerts us to the role of the Quran of creation in the story of the burial. And when people are corrupting the earth, they are in a state of rebellion against the Quran of creation. They literally don't care about the Quran of creation because they look at everything from an egocentric point of view, a self-serving point of view. The, if you have power, use it. If you have privilege, use it. If you can dominate, do it. If you can be a hegemon, do it. And if you can exploit the earth in whichever way you want to exploit it, do it. This is, this is, epitomizes rebellion against God and the prophet. That is precisely what rebellion against God and the prophet is. Now, this carries on to tell you also that when it talks about asarik wasarika, those who, who steal, and or those who usurp property, usurpation of property becomes the norm 
when the weaker feeds, when the stronger weeks feeds on the weaker. And in my view, when God says their punishment is the text of the Quran is engaging. I mean, of course, uh, uh, because I think I'm sure Joe is thinking of this right now. That I've I spelled some of some of this in my book Reasoning with God. So, and it is consistent with Reasoning with God from a different angle. That what consistent with what the role of um, legalistic texts did in the pre-modern age is that the, the legal text would often set out a punitive action that is proportional to the gravity of the moral crime. It's like saying, it's like, you know, if you, the, um, as in the Old Testament, you know, if you strike your parent, the punishment is, is death. Did really the Bible imagine that everyone that struck their parent, that they would be executed? If you're historically uninformed, you would say yes. If you're historically informed, you'd understand that what the Bible was saying is that in an abstract way, you 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 would deserve death. We're not going to kill you because there are other factors that mitigate against the punishment but from a an abstract point of view this is such a horrible crime that if we would really give you your just deserve it would be death this was medieval law communicated in every in whether you're talking about roman law you're talking about jewish law you're talking about uh, uh, the uh, law of Hammurabi, or you're talking about uh, Persian law, or the Persian, all medieval legal systems did that. The point is to understand the moral gravity of the crime, and the point is to understand, to focus on the nature of the crime, but when it comes to implementing the crime, and that is precisely why medieval Muslim jurists did what you would expect from the medieval mind, is that then they would set out the punishment, but then they would create all the evidentiary reasons why the punishment cannot be carried out. Which is, again, very classic medieval methodology. But in the context of Surah Al-Ma'idah, in my view, God is saying what will result is 
exactly what I've described, its process of the stronger, the, 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 the powerful, victimizing, the weaker. And that in the abstract, these punishments would deserve the following penalties. But there are two things. Well, actually, we can summarize it in one thing, which you find in, in a lot of Islamic jurisprudence, but you also in, in moral thinking. In order to carry out these punishments, it, you need clean hands. So, and this, for the, the reader of the medieval text, they understood this very well. That, well, if you're going to talk about punishing those who commit corruption on the earth, you cannot be, in part, in part or, in, in of course, in total, part of the reason that they commit corruption on the earth. You cannot have unclean hands. Whether you are talking, so you cannot talk about maximizing the punishment if you yourself are a participant or you yourself replicate even in part that type of crime. This is in the, in the law of Qasas when it tells you, okay, if someone comes and let's say someone in the typical medieval law of Qasas, what, what they, would they say? They say, if someone comes and pops your eye out, you can pop their eye out. But what is the caveat? Is that you take the risk. If your injury exceeds the injury you suffered to any extent, then you become responsible for the excess. In the medieval mind, no one is going to take that risk. Because... How are you going to reproduce the same precise exact injury? So in the medieval mind, people understood that the this was to register a moral point and that the safer thing is to take financial compensation because you're not going to be able to follow the law of Talion. So it, it, it is not the case that in, in the medieval world, people were going around carrying the law of Talion against one another. People were accepting financial compensation. But the, the moral point remained that in principle, you ought, if, if, if only we could reproduce the same precise exact injury, what you did to others ought to be done to you. The point in Surah Al-Ma'idah, in my view, was not to get us to obsess about the punishment. It is to get us to think about the moral infraction. If you become a lost people, if you cower, and we'll see this in the balance of Surah Al-Ma'idah as, as it progresses on, because God emphasizes this again and again. If you become a people that cower away and turn away from the moral challenge and you become like the embodiment of the Israelites who 
are lost for 40 years, all like Cain and Abel, who turn against one another. The powerful will terrorize the vulnerable. And while in theory this is their just desert, but you are not going to be able to apply the just desert unless you have clean hands. And clean hands, if, if you truly had clean hands, the crime wouldn't occur. But anyway, the point is not the penalty itself. So the point is not to sever the hands of a thief. The point is to understand the gravity of the crime as abstractly, ideally, deserving such a punishment. And to do whatever is necessary to prevent the occurrence of the crime, to prevent you praying against one another, And, and to focus in the same way that you focus on punishment, focus on the other side of the coin of whether you have clean hands. So when someone comes and says, the, the punishment of severing the hands of a thief, It's not the issue of whether you have need in society or not need, because that's what Muslim jurists tend to focus on. But the issue is whether this society has clean hands to even talk about that level of punishment. You can't go around talking about a punishment as severe as severing the hands of a thief if the people who would be involved, the state that is involved in carrying out such a punishment is itself involved with stealing. And so, and, and, and including if your elite usurp economic privileges in unfair and unequitable way, which means stealing. So, that's one thing. The other thing, so the, but this is a, a critical point which I, I will come back to, in this, but the other thing that I also want to get in is that there is a world of difference when you told people in an age where you grew up the idea of a blade and the sight of blood and the sight of blade, a blade cutting through flesh, whether human flesh or inhuman flesh, every war you entered into, every battle, every injury will involve 
I mean, this is the age before anesthesia, the age before painkillers, the age before, you know, a whole... The, the psychology of human beings itself is not scandalized by the idea of corporal or physical punishments, even punishments that leave permanent um, permanent handicaps or permanent uh, uh, results on a human body. The very concept inherent in the idea of Subul salam the path to goodness, puts epistemological constraints on us. The human psychology of today, which is highly sanitized, there, a human being can live and die and never see an animal be slaughtered or can live and die and never see a blade cutting through anything. You cannot come to this human psychology and say, oh, you should normally accept the, the idea of severing, severing limbs. And when I approach the text, I take the, this the in totality of everything that surrounded the text in mind, including the symbolic role of the text, in do, including the subjective psychologies that were recipients of the text, but most important of all is the role of the narrative in the text. And, and going back to Surah Al-Ma'idah now, the role of the narrative is that it is describing the just or the the the, the abstract recompense or the abstract um, deserve of people who would commit these crimes for. And it is in the context of a discourse about a state of loss and a state of victimization. But if you have unclean hands because you are a people in a state of loss and a, state, and a people that have allowed for this type of victimization and inequalities of power, we are far from being in in the realm of implementing these severe punishments because we cannot do it justly. But note here the very important interjection, which I think is extremely telling. Okay. So after we talk about the law of Hiraba, which is, as I say, I don't think is is a is a in my view it's it's a, it's a symbolic construct and it's not an actual prescriptive construct. Um, then, ya ayyuha al-ladina amanu, ittaqu Allah wa btagu ilayhi al-wasila wa jahidu fi sabilihi la'allakum tuflihun. Allah interjects this by saying, it's like people, believers, 
get the point. What I am telling you is about ittaqa'illah, is about being mindful, ever mindful of God. And and seek after your Lord. And commit to a dynamic of jihad in the path of your Lord. Because this is the path of success. So, the interjection itself is telling you understand that when God is talking about what results in corruption upon the earth and what results in the powerful victimizing the weak and what results in these relationships of terrorizing that would lead to ugly dynamics, ugly dynamics of severe criminal penalties and that would could only be carried if you have clean hands, but then you would realize you don't have clean hands, so you don't you can't carry the severe criminal penalties, so you end up locked in a cycle of crime and cause and effect and in this endless cycle of loss, the way out of this is to commit to seeking the path of your Lord and to strive the jihad that your jihad is a jihad in the in the in realizing the ideals and the morals of your Lord. And why does why is this followed? Was talking about in the hereafter, material things will not will not uh, avail you anything. Is the path of your Lord means conquering your materialism. In the same way that the Israelites, what what they failed prey to when they preferred subjugation to liberation is materialism, the, the, the comforts of enslavement. In the same way that when Cain killed Abel, when his sacrifice was not accepted, what he was what he failed prey to again is a purely materialistic view of things well here's my sacrifice here's his sacrifice and in the same way that when the powerful prey upon the weak is what what is the ailment here it's materialism time and again the consequence of drifting away from the moral path, the ethical path of Subul Salam, the path of goodness, is that you succumb to materialism and understand that this materialism will avail you nothing in the hereafter.
and understand that the crime of theft, which is, again, a crime of materialism, if you had clean hands, it would deserve a punishment so resolute, so decisive, but lost people do not have clean hands. And because you don't have clean hands, you will be, you will, you doom yourself to be locked into the cycle of the type of, the type of corruption that, in fact, which is the, 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 when the prophet, there is a tradition attributed to the prophet which is probably authentic, when he says that the people, that what, the, what caused the moral failure of the Israelites is that when the powerful stole, they would let the powerful go, and when the weak stole, they would punish. It fits in precisely here, is that you end up locked into the cycle of materialism and suffering assaults against the self that comes fundamentally from a moral ailment, not a punitive legal ailment. So the, the answer is not in, it's in dealing with the moral ailment, the cause itself, rather than simply the punitive effects, because that's not going to solve your problem. Okay. Okay. And this is precisely why why Muslim jurists, you know, they would go into great detail about uh, repentance. When does repentance count? Does repentance drop the punishment before or after, and so on? I, my, I, I think the, the reason that Allah follows the revelation, the path, every time Allah talks about an offense and punishment to offense with an emphasis on repentance, as you see right after the verses on Fasad Fil Ard and right after the verses on Sariqa, on, on stealing, you have it emphasizes on thamantaba min ba'di zulmihi wa aslaha fa inna Allah yatubu alayhi Allah repeatedly is telling us the way out of this dilemma this cycle this trap is to come back to look within and to come back from the path of being lost to, in short, repent, to, to come back to God. That is your way out. I, I don't, you know, the, 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 the technicalities of, is it talking about repentance before the punishment or after? I, I think that completely misses the point because it, 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 it assumes 
that these verses about repentance are talking, uh, are speaking to the micro level, to the individual level, rather to the, the macro level, to the collectivity, and saying, remember that the way out of, be, of being trapped in this dynamic of looking to criminal penalties to solve the problem and time and again finding that you don't have clean hands and criminal penalties are not availing you anything and criminal penalties are in fact are not doing the job because of the deep fissures and contradictions in your very soul is that you find your path back to God. Okay, what time is it? 9.13. Okay, it's 9.13 here, so it's, let's stop. Uh, so we stopped at verse 39. Uh, oh, before, be, before we end, I, I remembered one thing that I, I should... Um, Imam al-Hassan was asked... Um, um, there was a debate in early Islam, a debate that died once you had the birth of Islamic law in, that came hand in hand with the birth of the Islamic empire, you know, Islamic imperial law. There was a debate as to whether the verses on causing corruption on the earth um, and the, the the descriptions of what happens to people that cause corruption on earth, whether in fact this was talking about the Israelites or was it intended for Muslims. And so the whether in fact what the verses were saying um, is that for the Israelites, those who caused corruption on earth, and and of course the 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 the, the thing about this debate is that it, it says whoever fights God and his apostle, and so why would the apostle be Moses but not Muhammad anyway? But Imam al-Hassan was asked about whether this verse was intended to apply to the Israelites but not to Muslims. And the, there are several traditions that report that he says, ما كانت دماء بني إسرائيل أكرم على الله من دمائنا that, listen, the blood of the Israelites was not dearer to God than our blood. And I, I was struck by this response because it, 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 it shows that Imam al-Hassan understood that there's the, the issue here is the moral point. It's not the technical criminal point. 
the issue is what God is saying about the value of blood, meaning the value of life. And that when God is saying that, you know, people who go around causing corruption on earth, that what God is talking about is the, the violations against human life. And he's saying, well, if that moral lesson was good enough for the Israelites, it, it, it most certainly applies to us. And, you know, these, these, there are, the Islamic tradition is full of these, um, uh, are full of these vignettes. So, for instance, there's another report, again, attributed to the Imam al-Hassan, which, um, where he's asked, we understand that causing corruption on earth is that it is killing and raping. But what else would be included in, 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 uh, in causing corruption on earth? So he says, uh, which is astounding. He says, well, what else is usurpation of money? And being ty tyrannical towards people. And destroying homes, and tearing down trees or killing uh, vegetation, and destroying streams and rivers. All of it of clear moral import, right? If you're if you're reading it non dogmatically, and you're actually set aside all the dogma and, and focus on what the that, that language do it was doing in historically within the context it which in which it was uttered it's clearly saying there are moral corruption is the destruction of what ought to be honored at at so many different levels Everything from murder to rape to the destruction of the environment to injustice and despotism itself. So that is why if you read my rebellion book, you find I talk about a very early perspective in Islamic law which said that the punishment for hiraba, the punishment for causing corruption on earth, doesn't apply to highway robbers mean, meaning pirates it applies to government soldiers which is i mean again shows you the type of that it's in other words those this perspective which later on got labeled the khawarij to in order to to which in fact they were not necessarily khawarij in order to to uh, uh, marginalize them but it's saying who is it goes around committing tyranny and destroying things? It's a government. It's not common people. So they said it's government soldiers that deserve to be banished on earth. And you know, it's it again. It shows you the moral function of the text, and liberates you from legalistic approaches to the text.
that I think miss the entire, entire moral point. Okay, now we can stop. Okay, oh my God. Alhamdulillah. Um, uh, what a great way to end the, the new the year, new year, the old year, start the new year. Um, just to, not in any particular order, um, share some highlights that really just jumped out at me. Um, obviously, the, that you mentioned that Surah Al-Ma'idah is really a direct challenge to moral apathy. And, you know, you just cannot help but be reminded about the very clear parallels to um, what is happening today in our world um, and the report that you mentioned about how um, the Israelites failed when they allowed the powerful to steal and get away with it and then punish the poor. And that you just see around us everywhere, especially in America. Um, and it just really makes you reflect on the power of that message. Um, how the Quran of creation speaks to you and that when you kill or destroy the Quran of creation, that you are really engaging in a rebellion against you know, God and the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, of course, then you cannot help but think about climate change and all the different things that we are doing to kill the Quran of creation or you know, kill the population of birds or you know, species, I mean, all of that. Um, and all of the indicators of what happens when we stray um, from God and go from light to darkness, um, indicators like anger, anxiety, enmity, you know, impatience, uh, warring, um, and how you said that what happens at the micro level can also be generalized to the macro level. Um, and then the power of obviously the sin of, um, or the, the story of Cain and Abel and the sin of murder, and also the, the really um, important insight that not only are you um, committing the sin of murder, but then you are cutting off someone else's ability to repent for all of the sins that they've committed, and that becomes yours. Um, and then when you transpose that to how many Muslims are killing other Muslims, how many people are killing other people, it's just, um, it, it really defies um, Everything. I mean, it's just it's hard to get your 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 mind around. Um, so there, there was just and, and then the at last the um, the moral function of the text and how honestly through through this halakha it, it, time and time again you just see the power of this approach of looking at things really delving down and understanding what was the moral point what was the moral message what is the greater lesson here and liberating us from the details which often especially now sort of trap us in stupidity you know people get so caught up in the technicalities that they they completely miss the forest for the trees and so when you go back and you take us through this journey and share with us all the things that you were able to arrive at through following all the rabbit holes of research and everything else this for us is such a gift to just say, okay, look, we, we can be liberated by understanding that the morality is the point, the lessons are the point, and makes us so much makes it so much easier for us to apply those lessons to our day and age and what and, and what we should do. So thank you for that gift. It is an incredible gift um, through the entire Quran, as we've seen, um, or at least you know, 91 surahs, 91 and a half surahs so far, and inshallah. Um, 23 and a half more to go <laughs> so looking forward to um, 
starting the new year tomorrow or in three hours and uh, and see where the rest of this journey will take us. So happy new year, everyone. Some of these people, is it new no. year already? Uh, Are there? I don't think anyone here. Oh, Joe. Yes. Happy New Year, Joe. How's it feel in 2023? <laughs> well, oh, he had he said it was quite nice to have fireworks going in the background. It's a good thing it doesn't have dogs. Yeah, it's a good thing you don't have dogs. <laughs> yeah, we, we better go bring Doogie in in a second. So anyone, anyway, um, this was wonderful to spend this last day of 2022 with all of you. And inshallah, I pray that everyone has a very blessed rest of 2022 and a wonderful and amazing start of 2023. May it just get better, inshallah, with um, every passing moment, inshallah. So to be continued next week, we will see you next Saturday, inshallah. Have a wonderful week, everybody. Assalamu alaikum.